Good morning. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 13. As it says on the screen, this is the Hebrews finale. We began this study in Hebrews back on April 11th, and this morning's the 24th session, which is uh, basically half of the allocation of our Sunday morning teaching time. So let me ask the question, was it worth it? What did you learn? What changed in your life? Because we've spent six months in the book of Hebrews. Has your understanding or your perspective or your way of living changed? Is there something you can point at in your life and say, because we were in the book of Hebrews, this is different in my life. The the word of God is given to change lives. So let's do a little bit of of review. The, The focus of the book is on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's several times when the author just stops and points to the Lord Jesus. Uh, In chapter 2, he talks about the ruin of fallen mankind, that what God intended for mankind isn't happening. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says, but we see him. And there's the hope for ruin mankind. You come over to Hebrews, uh, the end of chapter 2, It talks about the power of temptation and the answer to the power of temptation. Hebrews 3.1, consider Jesus the the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then you go over to chapter 4 where he picks up that thought again uh, in verses 14 and 16. And he talks about the throne of grace. And there's help against the power of temptation in our lives as we look and consider the Lord Jesus. And then the struggles of running the Christian race, Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author or leader and perfecter of faith. As we run our race and we run into the difficulties and the obstacles of life, there's someone we can look to who's run it as well and and got the victory and who sits at the right hand of God to give us aid. And then the answer to the hostility of the world. You ever feel like you're swimming upstream? Well, in Hebrews 12, 3, it says, Consider him who endured the hostility of sinners against himself, unless you become weary in your own struggle. And so the writer of Hebrews constantly wants us to look at the Lord Jesus. And so in this book... We see the greatness of his person. And so again and again, the Lord Jesus is shown to outshine angels and all the bright lights of the Old Testament. Moses, Joshua, Abraham, you name whoever it is. Because he's the creator and the sustainer and savior. And you know, while we're thankful for lesser lights, we don't want to focus on them and become distracted from the Lord. In 1 Corinthians There were those who said, hey, we're followers of Peter. No, we're followers of Paul. No, we're followers of Apostle, Apollos. 
And we can get our eyes focused on some teacher we like, some, some author we like, and get it off the Lord Jesus. You know, Peter faced that in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and, and Elijah in their glorified bodies were there. And he says, hey, Lord, let's build three tabernacles, one for you and one for both of these guys. And God rebuked him and said, um, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And as we've gone through this book, and again and again, Hebrews shows the greatness of the Lord Jesus over any other person. Has your desire to know him, to spend time to him, to listen to him grown? Because this is the one who has the answers. We see the greatness of his work. The work of Christ gives peace with the past. Uh, Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace because the wrath of God's justice has been paid in full. They give confidence in the presence because 2 Peter 1.3, everything pertaining to life and godliness has been granted to us through the power of this one who Hebrews 7.25 says is able to save forever since he always lives to make intercession for them. He gives us confidence. As we, we look at our past, there's peace. As we look at our present, there's confidence. And as we look to the future, there's joyful expectation. Because, again, Peter says, by his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of the throne of God, uh, we are guaranteed a living hope. And so... Has our time in Hebrews given you greater peace, greater confidence, a greater sense of joyful expectation? That's what the writer of Hebrews wanted. As we see Jesus Christ, as we come to spend time to him, uh, we see the greatness of his position. Four times in Hebrews, the writer declares that the Lord Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God where he ministers to his people as their great high priest, and as we'll see in this passage, the great shepherd of the sheep. And his position is meant to give us great confidence to draw near to God's throne. Why? Because the Lord Jesus is sitting there. Because the Lord Jesus makes us acceptable. We're going to see that in this passage uh, today. And the throne of God, this throne of justice, this throne of holiness becomes a throne of grace because the Lord Jesus is there representing us. And so the book of Hebrews wants to encourage you as you look at the past, as you look at the present, as you look at the future, because you have this person. Did you ever play pickup football? You got the biggest guy on your team, and you just said, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is good. Well, you have the biggest guy on your team, the right Hebrew says, and he wants you to, to know that and to enjoy that and live in the fullness of that. So we're going to press on. At, at the end of Hebrews here, if you remember chapter, as he comes to chapters 11, 12, and 13, he's really focusing on, on more practical things in the Christian life. In Hebrews 11, he's talking about living by faith with all those examples of others who did. In chapter 12, he's talking about our hope 
because we have Christ that we can look to, because we know in all of our obstacles, God is in control and he's using it for our good and there's a glorious future ahead. And when we came to chapter 13, it talks a lot about love. And we ended last week with verse 9. It says, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. He talks about false doctrine. He talks about uh, focusing on the wrong thing. Those, uh, the people of this book is written to, they're thinking about going back to Judaism, back to the temple, back to the sacrifices, back to the rituals. And he says, those things were shadows. Those things were just, uh, they're not the substance. They're just shadows of what God wanted to do. They're, they're uh, pictures, illustrations of what Christ brings in reality. Don't go back to those things because there's no benefit in those. And so now he's going to talk about benefit. And so let's pray together. Father, we pray as we look into your word that you would be pleased to minister to our hearts. The one we want to see is your son, the Lord Jesus. The one we want to draw near to is your son, the Lord Jesus. So do that in our hearts because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. If you came into the tabernacle, and he's using that as the picture, and you walked in that multicolored door, that 30-foot wide door that you could come into the tabernacle, you would see the biggest piece of furniture in the entire tabernacle. It was um, seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet deep, um, and five, four and a half feet high. It was the brazen altar. The brazen altar was a place where sin was acknowledged. You came there to tell the priest you had sinned. It was a place where sin was judged because God had built a fence around his tabernacle that said, I'm holy. Sin can't enter my presence and sin has to be dealt with. And so the brazen altar was the place where sin was dealt with, where sin was judged. It was the place where a substitute died. You should happen to be bold enough, I expect, to show up all by yourself if you wanted to be right, you would die. Something died at the brazen altar, a substitute that God had said, here's the kind of substitute you can bring. Couldn't bring a camel, couldn't bring a woodchuck. No, God had very specific, and even the animals that, that were allowed had to be without blemish. And so he showed up with the animal, the substitute that God allowed, and it died. And then the priest said, your sin's forgiven. Forgiveness was found at the brazen altar. We have an altar. Where is our place where sin is acknowledged, where sin is judged? where a substitute dies, and where we can say we've been forgiven. It's the cross. He says, listen, we have an altar. And those who, who, who 
want to use the tabernacle, those who want these rituals, those who, who want that, um, have no right to eat. There were certain sacrifices I could bring to that brazen altar and I could eat part of it. And there were certain sacrifices that uh, the priest could eat of. But those who don't come to the cross have no right to feed on the work of Christ. The Lord Jesus uses that picture in, in John chapter 6 when he fed the 5,000. In verse 54, he says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, some people uh, mistakenly tie that into the bread and, and wine, but earlier in verse 40, the same results uh, I'll give them eternal life and raise them up on the last day, come from believing in the Son. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood is putting your faith in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as your substitute for your sin, and you feed on him. And those who reject Christ have no right to eat from that altar. The cross does them no good if they reject Christ. Jesus Christ's death is the only substitute God accepts. Just like you had to bring the sacrifice that God ordered, the only sacrifice that stands today is Jesus Christ. And so if you reject Jesus Christ, you miss forgiveness of sins. You miss salvation. The writer goes on. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. The writer has in mind now the day of atonement. And that was the day when the sin of the whole nation was dealt with. And so uh, the priest would bring in a sacrifice for his own sins. The animal would would be killed. He'd take the blood in behind the veil to the Ark of the Covenant, sprinkle it. Then he'd come out and he would offer the goat for the sins of the whole nation. And he would go in and he would sprinkle the blood on, on the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, it would be provide a covering against the sins of Israel to accept the nation. Those animals were not allowed to be eaten. Those animals were taken outside the camp and they were burned completely with fire because their blood had been taken into the Holy of Holies. The Day of Atonement foreshadows is a type of the death of Christ. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the nation of Israel, but when Jesus Christ died on the cross as our substitute, as the Lamb of God, he took away the sin of the whole world. And so the writer says, verse 12, Therefore, in this picture, seeing the, the, the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice for the nation of Israel, is a type of, of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. The Lord Jesus was taken outside the city of Jerusalem, outside the camp of Israel that was around the temple. He was, he was crucified outside the city. And that's right in line with what happened on the Day of Atonement. 
He was taken outside the city, and, and that's where they disposed of the Lord Jesus. But his blood sanctifies his people. It makes them holy. It makes them acceptable to God. It sets them apart to worship and serve God. The cost was his blood, his death. Jesus is treated, it has been treated as a sin bearer. The sin bearer was taken outside, outside the camp. And that's where Jesus died, to make us right with God. So he says, verse 13, So, in light of this, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. He's, he's kind of shifting in his thoughts here a little bit. See, outside the camp was also the place of rejection. If, if you touched a dead body, you had to stay outside the camp until you were cleansed. If you were a leper, you were outside the camp. It, it was those that were rejected. And the Lord Jesus is, has been rejected by the Jewish nation, rejected by the the Jewish religious authorities. We will not have this man to reign over us. Crucify him. And so he's taken outside the camp. He's been rejected by Israel. So let us go outside the camp. He's saying to these Jewish Christians who still want to go up to the temple, who still want to do the ritual, who still want to do those things, he's saying, no, you don't get it. Jesus Christ is outside the tent. The death of Jesus Christ makes a separation. And he said, you're going to have to recognize that. Um, Dave McLeod writes in his commentary, the true Christian can have no part in a system that has cast Jesus Christ out. We must reject any religious system that rejects Christ. The cross stands like a huge boulder in the stream of humanity. When you come to the cross of Christ, you've got to go one way or the other. It makes a separation. And he says, listen, you can't go back to Judaism. Judaism has rejected Christ. And yes, there is a reproach. Those outside the camp were outside the camp. They were rejected. There is a reproach. And so he says, um, let us go outside the camp bearing his reproach. Identifying with Jesus Christ and his cross brings reproach and hostility. You know, you can, you can talk about God in our world all you want, but if you start talking about Jesus Christ... Suddenly, there's a problem. You can talk about living a good life, but if you start talking about the cross, there's a problem. This, this phrase, bearing his reproach, is the exact same words as back in chapter 11, where it says of Moses in verse 26, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses made a choice. 
I'm going to identify with the children of Israel. And you know what? I'm not going to be able to be who I was in Egypt when I identify with the children of Israel. But the reproach of Christ is greater riches than the riches of Egypt. And so he calls us to identify with Jesus Christ. And later he's going he's to bring that up in, in, in a couple <coughs> verses from now. Do you identify with Jesus Christ? Do people know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? There will be hostility. There will be reproach. And the writer of Hebrews says, but that's where the Lord Jesus went for us so that he might sanctify us to God. All the benefits that we get come from the cross and, and him being outside the camp. And so we need to identify with him. He says, verse 14, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. These Jewish believers were going to lose something. This is written before the destruction of the temple, before the destruction of Jerusalem. They're going to lose all that is associated with, with Jerusalem. Can you imagine a lot of the priests came to the Lord Jesus, we're told in the book of Acts. Can you imagine your whole life, you're, you've been told since you're a child, you get to be a priest of God, you get to offer the sacrifices, you get to do these things in the temple, and then all of a sudden you're told, you can't do that anymore. You're rejected. And he says, look, everything about this world is temporary. We're seeking something that's eternal. And Abraham in verse 11 was seeking a city whose architect and builder is God. And because of that, he was willing to sojourn in the land, dwelling in tents. And that same attitude has to be ours. You know, there's a very interesting word in the book of Revelation it's the term translated, those who dwell upon the earth. And it's a single word in the Greek, earth dwellers. Those whose whole attention and focus and desire is here. And in the book of, Hebrew, in the book of Revelation, those are the ones that get the mark of the beast. Those are the ones that come under the judgment of God. We are not earth dwellers. We had at the, the prayer breakfast um, was on Colossians 3 where it says we are called to set our minds on things above not on things that are on the earth to keep seeking those things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where our attention, our focus is. And someday we'll be there. If you know Jesus Christ, if you've come to the cross, acknowledged your sin, brought Jesus Christ as your substitute, he dies in your place for your sins, God says there's forgiveness for you. And there's a future. And we need, we're on a pilgrimage. We're on a journey. Our focus isn't here. It's there. Because Christ is our life. And so he comes to verse 15 and 16. And he talks about true worship. Oh, sorry. 
Um, Verse 15, through him then. These words are placed in the place of emphasis. The only true worship of God is offered through Jesus Christ. It is through him. He makes you acceptable to God. He sets you apart for worship and and to serve God. He makes you right in the sight of God. And so only through him can we Uh, Let us offer continually a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. We offer sacrifices, not sheep and goats and, and cattle. One of the sacrifices we, we offer is the sacrifice of praise. Uh, This phrase fruit of, of lips uh, comes from Hosea 14.2 and Isaiah 57.19, where the, after they've been restored to God, Israel is going to give praise to God, the fruit of their lips. God wants to hear us responding to him for what we've received. And notice it's continually. At the temple, there were set times for sacrifice. There was the morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, the day of atonement. There was particular sacrifices. But we get to continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. 24-7, we can turn our hearts towards heaven and bring God a sacrifice of praise. My version says, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. In the breaking of bread, Tony's translation said that acknowledge his name. Um, It's really even stronger than acknowledge. It is confess. If I confess his name, it goes back to that identifying with Christ. I confess his name. He is my savior. He is my Lord. He is my life. I, I confess that. I confess that with words. And then he's going to talk about confessing that with your life. That the statement your life makes is a statement about the name of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. That's what pleases the heart of God. In Ephesians 5, it it talks about uh, Jesus Christ being a sweet fragrance to God. And so we... Offer these sacrifices. And, and it, it may be at the breaking of bread where, where there's opportunity to sing praises. It, it may be alone in your car uh, singing praises. It, it may be standing up in a difficult situation and saying, I belong to Jesus Christ. I can't do that. It's that identifying with Christ. Confessing his name. He goes on. And do not neglect doing good. Kind and loving actions. Especially in Titus and First and Second Timothy. Um, the writer uh, Paul again and again mentions good deeds and good works. In, in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, he says he's purified a people for his own possession, a people zealous for good works. 
good deeds. There's something about these Christians. They just want to do kind and, and good deeds for people. In um, Titus 3.1, ready for every good deed. And that word ready means first in line. When, when there's a problem, who show up? The Christians show up. They're first in line to do good deeds. Why? Because we're his workmanship in Christ. Created to do good deeds, which God has foreordained that we should do them. Why? Because that's how God is. And we're his children. And sharing. This word sharing is um, the word koinonia. Fellowship. It is that understanding that I have a um, family bond. And so if there's someone in the family in need, you help. Most of us who have lived in families have at one time or another had the family rally around when we were in difficult circumstances or needed something. Why? Because your family... And so they rally round. And so it has the idea of sharing. Sharing and meeting needs in the family. And, and beyond the family. But as a, as a statement of, of who we are. Because we belong to Christ. And he says for with such sacrifices. God's pleased. And so he says listen. I'm not pleased when you say to to a believer who's in desperate need, hey, may God bless you and take care of you. And you don't pull out your wallet and help. No, God's pleased when you acknowledge, oh yeah, you need help. I have the wherewithal. I'm going to help. I was talking to Percy. Uh, Christian Fellowship does uh, baskets or boxes of, of a turkey dinner all the fixings for a Thanksgiving meal that they take out to different families and you probably don't know this but they were wondering whether they could do it this year just because of financial straits and the deacons here said you know you're the point of the spear we're going to give your point a little extra and we sent them $500 to help them minister to families that they know are in need and I have to tell you, we, we've helped them in the past, and I know that when they drop that off, they say, this is from Christian Fellowship and Bethany Bible Chapel. <laughs> they, they let people know. But it, it's a way where lives are being touched. And it pleases God. It pleases God. So he talks about true worship. Then... Um, he talks about leaders. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. Um, obey your leaders when you agree with them. Submit to your leaders when you have a difference of opinion. Um, doesn't mean you don't share with them your difference of opinion, but you submit to them. And, and he says, um, 
For they keep watch over your souls. That word keep watch means to, uh, has the idea of chasing away sleep. Having been an elder and known a lot of elders, I know whether they talk about going home from a particular elders meeting where there's a lot of emotion because there's things going on that you have to deal with and nobody sleeps. Okay, it's several hours before your emotions get toned down. Or you hear about a sheep in trouble and you're stirred by that and you can't sleep. You find yourself getting up and praying or, or, or going. They keep watch over your soul, your inner man, your spiritual well-being. It chases away sleep because they're concerned that in the coming day, as Paul could say to the Thessalonians, in the day you stand before Christ, you're going to be my joy and crown. That's what, God, what they want. And so it says, uh, let them do this with joy and not with grief. That word grief actually means groaning. There are people elders groan over. I'm sure I, I could name some names to some elders here and it would produce a groan. People who did not respond to counsel, did not respond to shepherding, went and had sad consequences on them and others in their circle. And you just groan. I heard one elder said, it's like watching a train wreck in slow motion. And you groan. No. <laughs> Let the elders work. Listen to their counsel. Respond to them. So that there's joy because you grow spiritually. You mature. And he says, for this would be unprofitable for you. It's unprofitable in a couple ways. If you don't listen to the, to the uh, advice of the elders... It produced bad, bad results. Um, that's unprofitable for you as an individual. But if you tie up the elders, and sometimes you have issues, and elders meeting after elders meeting after elders meeting after elders meeting after elders meeting, after elders meeting lots of time, and all these elder meetings are sent spent on one issue it comes up again and again. And outside the elders meeting, dozens of elders are spending time on this. You know what happens? Other people get robbed. Other people get robbed. And it's unprofitable for the whole body. Are elders always right? No. No, they're not. But I'll tell you, a group of godly men who work in consensus, where there's not one bull elder calling all the shots, but they work in consensus and they're on their knees asking for God's direction, they're going to be right a whole lot more than they're wrong. And so he says, listen, submit and obey your elders. And then he takes up prayer. Sorry, we have to... He says, pray for us. The word has the idea of pray and keep on praying. And he turns to some personal prayer requests. And, and they're a little odd. He says, for we are sure we have a good conscience. Romans 2.15 says uh, of, of 
the pagans, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Uh, God's given us a conscience. Uh, it, it convicts me to do what I believe is right and to stay away from what I believe is wrong. It doesn't tell me what's right or wrong. It, it works on what I believe. Uh, but Paul says, even these uh, Gentile pagans, they have some of the law of God written on their hearts. So there is some truth there. And the scripture talks about having a good conscience where you respond to your conscience and, and you do what's right. Paul could say in Acts 23, I've lived my whole life as a good conscience. And, but he says, you know, I persecuted the church because I was ignorant. I didn't have all the facts. But I, I lived in a good conscience. Um, there's an evil conscience, Hebrews 10.22, where your conscience keeps uh, harping at you and attacking you. Uh, a classic example is you've done something wrong in your past, and every time you think about it, you go to God and say, oh, God, I, I'm so sorry I did that. Please forgive me. It's already under the blood. I remember Dan Smith at Emmaus saying, stop reminding of God, God of those things he's chosen to remember no more. It's an evil conscience. It just keeps attacking you when there's no reason to be attacked. Um, there's the seared conscience, which is so badly damaged, it, it just doesn't speak to you anymore. Here, um, it says, we have a good conscience. There's two words for good. Every other place, the scripture talks about a good conscience. It's agathos. It, it's you're lining up with what your conscience tells you to do. This is a different word. This is the word kalas. And I think a better translation is, is the translation an honest conscience. Apparently, there's some friction between the writer of Hebrews and this group. It's going to come out a little bit more later. And perhaps there's some who are accusing him of, of not being completely right on this. And he says to them, listen... I have an honest conscience as I have spoken to you and brought these things up, but you, you pray that I have an honest conscience. Why? Because all of us have been absolutely sincerely wrong. Okay? And it's kind of a tough thing to pray for an honest conscience. God, where I'm off base, even though I'm 100% absolutely sincere, Show me when I don't have an honest conscience. And so he, he asked for prayer for an honest conscience. And then he, he prays, uh, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably. That's that word kalas again. Uh, honestly, honorably in all things. A and that's what you want to do if you hold the word of God. You want to be honorable. You want to be honest in the way you deal with people and you deal with things. And then he says, I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you sooner. He says, I want you to pray more abundantly beyond measure. So whatever obstacle was keeping him from them, whether it was sickness, imprisonment, uh, service, or some disagreement between him and them, that it would be removed. And then, boy, we come to this wonderful benediction or, or doxology in verses 20 to 21. Let's look at this. Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, 
through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, the God of peace, that's used a lot of times in Scripture. God is the source of peace in salvation and in personal and church life. The peace with God and the peace of God. And then he says, this God has shown his ability to answer the prayer request I'm going to make in verse 21 through two mighty acts. The first is the resurrection, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Um, this is the first time resurrection's mentioned in the, in the book of Hebrews, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ is mentioned. The resurrection of Jesus Christ assures Christ's victory over death and Satan, and it's the guarantee of his present ministry as our great shepherd. Why can Jesus Christ care for me, lead me, help me, as a shepherd does his sheep? Because he's been raised from the dead and put at the right hand of God. Then there's the fact that um, through his blood, he made the eternal covenant. This isn't like the covenant at Sinai. The, sky, the covenant at Sinai is no more. It's been set aside by this eternal covenant. But the covenant Jesus Christ made for us, the new covenant, when he shed his blood on the cross, will never be set aside. It has power to save forever. It has power to make right with God forever. And, and this great covenant that God uh, produced. And so he, these two things, which are much harder to do, show that God has the ability to answer the request in verse 21. To equip you in every good thing to do his will. Equip has the idea of both mending what is broken and supplying what is needed. And God has the ability to mend or repair what's broken in our lives and the ability to supply everything we need to live the Christian life. Sometimes people say, well, I can't do that. Yes, you can. God has the ability to mend and repair. And God has the ability to supply. Um, every good thing goes back to that doing good. To do his will, obeying God's will through his word, knowing it and obeying it. And what's that produce? Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And he says, um, to do his will, working in us. You know, as we do, it's God who's doing the work in us, enabling us to do what pleases him. And it's through Jesus Christ, because all this was made possible because of Christ. And so to God the Father and the Lord Jesus be glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen. Verse 21 is the point of the spear. If you understand who Jesus Christ is through the whole rest of the book, then you'll have no problem with verse 21. He can mend me, he can repair me, he can supply what I need so that I can be a person who's enabled to do the will of God and be, be pleasing in the sight of God. And it's the, the whole focus of the book of Hebrews. Then he goes very, very quickly to just a few things, an appeal uh, to receive his encouragement. I urge you, brethren, to bear with this word of exhortation for I've written to you briefly um, and then uh, notice about 
Timothy has been released with whom if he comes, I'll see you. I'll come with him. And then he says, greet all of your leaders and all of the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Notice it's all the leaders, all the saints. Some are meeting with them. Hebrews 10.25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Some have chosen not to meet with them. But he says, you know what? I greet all of them, even if they're not there. I greet each and every one of you. And the saints here in Italy greet you as well. And then this wonderful closing blessing, grace be with you all. Um, you know, grace is a fitting note to end this letter. Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and a root of bitterness growing up defiles many. No, we all need the grace of God. And, it, and it's never short. We fall short of it. And so he says in 13, 9, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. So here's this book. God wants to do verse 21 in your life. And Jesus Christ has the power and the ability and the desire to do it because of who he is and what he's done. We go out to do good, to do his will, to identify with him this week. Pleasing to God. Father, we thank you. We feel weak. Sometimes we feel alone. We're thankful we're never alone. You're always with us. And while we are weak, we have someone who is not. So as we go forth, and there'll come those times to back away from confessing your name. There'll come times where uh, things will come into our lives and uh, help us at that moment to look to your son, to see him for who he is, to not only acknowledge him, but uh, draw near to him and find the help and grace he wants to do in our lives because we ask it in Jesus' name.